Welcome to the TCF World Podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I'm in Beirut, joined by my colleague Michael Wahidhana and our guest today, Rohan Advani. Rohan, you're going to tell us today about one of the unknown behemoths that uh, affects the geopolitics, security, and economics in the Middle East, the Dubai Ports World. What is DP World? DP World is a one of the biggest logistics operator. It's a global port operator that was established in, uh, it, ha- it traces its roots to the 1970s um, and it operates ports all around the world, South America, Africa, Middle East, South Asia. And it has a host of companies under its uh, governance structure throughout the world, including in Europe. And so this company is expanding all over and especially now in the Horn of Africa, in the autonomous regions of Somalia, such as Somaliland and Puntland. And while this may seem just like neutral economic projects, they're in fact operating in a highly contested geopolitical zone where there is, you know, it's been overlaid with GCC rivalries. So there's Turkish investments, Qatari investments, Saudi investments into this area. And it's creating quite a fraught geopolitical uh, uh, area. Uh, You've written this paper for us, um, talking about uh, DP World and their activity uh, in the Horn. Um, and, And I'm interested in the interaction between the economic and the geopolitical. Um, what what can you tell us about how DP World makes its decisions? Um, what's its connection to the Emirates and, and Emirati foreign policy? I mean, I want to start by saying that obviously things in the United Arab Emirates are relatively opaque. So it's hard to know the exact relationship between DP World and the state or even the rulers of Dubai. But what we do know from the governance structure is that DP World is owned 80% by Dubai World, which is basically the investment arm of the government of Dubai. And so- It's a really modest name for a company. <laughs> and so this, it, it obviously is, you know, the ruling family has pretty much ultimate control. Um, the thing about the UAE is that state and private capital are very much blurred. So the- CEO of DP World, Ahmed bin Sulaym, comes from a very prominent business family. His father was a close advisor to uh, the Maktoum family. And since 2009, uh, following the bankruptcy, basically, of Dubai World and the bailout from Abu Dhabi, we know that uh, decision-making processes, especially with regards to foreign policy, have become increasingly more coherent with regards to uh, Abu Dhabi's control over uh, the rest of the uh, federal uh, emirates. And so in terms of the relationship between uh, an economic entity, commercial entity such as DP World, um, I try to make the argument that essentially with regards to trade routes, logistics supplies, ports, uh, these are not simply economic ventures. They require a whole host of 
security arrangements. You know, if a cargo ship is moving from one place to another, it will need protection on some level. Um, when an investment occurs in a certain place, uh, that comes with a whole host of uh, security implications for that region in which uh, it opens the door for further Emirati political control. So is this economic decision-making, um, looking at investment opportunities, uh, then producing geopolitical results? Uh, is it a convergence of the economic and the geopolitical? I mean, are, are, is the idea about um, access, logistics, about uh, building out uh, war fighting capacity, or, or is that a secondary concern that then grows out of uh, economic decisions? Well, I think that they come together. Um, I'll start with talking about what exactly DP World's bread and butter is, right? So they are a logistics giant and they operate ports all over the world. So what they'll be responsible for doing is they'll win a contract somewhere, they'll develop a port, they'll maybe subcontract to dredge the port so it can take in bigger container ships, they'll um, do some land reclamation so that they can... Uh, build more areas to store containers, and so on. And so this sort of seems like just a commercial endeavor. But as we know, I mean, in somewhere like Somaliland, which is, uh, as I said, very geopolitically fraught, it's close to uh, the battlefield in Yemen, um, these things come together, right? And so it's not a coincidence that soon after the DP World signed this contract to operate the Berbera port with the government of Somaliland, that the Emirates signed a 25-year agreement to lease and refurbish the civilian airport and naval base in Somaliland, and soon after awarded a $90 million contract to an Emirati company to uh, basically you know, build out this naval base. And so, in effect, I mean the commercial port is going to be intertwined because in some sense, military operations are actually complex logistical operations. And in addition to that, they're also acting like a state. They're building hospitals, they're sending over doctors who are paid for, they are building water facilities, they're building highways. Um, so, you know, they are... It's, it's not simply just a commercial endeavor to move cargo. Uh, far from it, actually. Instead, what I try to show in this article is that they are deeply intertwined in both processes of state building and uh, sort of um, imperial military expansionism uh, in the Horn of Africa and the Red Sea. So, you know, that kind of, um, that scope of, of investment in these um, economies is then creating a lot of political influence um, and of course, Somaliland uh, operates autonomously. Uh, this isn't uh, an investment decision that is running through a, a central government. Uh, obviously, that's not what's happening. Um, so, you know, what what can we say about um, what this does in terms of the ability of the Emirates to uh, project political power or influence on on this part of Africa? So I think it's really interesting with regards to these autonomous areas such as Somaliland and Puntland because clearly the UAE 
and DP World is not working through the federal government. In fact, the federal government is was so angry with a lot of these deals that they actually banned DP World from operating in Somalia as a whole. But that obviously doesn't matter in a place that you don't actually have control over. And so what it shows is that why did they why did the central government not want them there? Because they think that well, there's a host of reasons. One is that uh, this is part of this growing GCC rivalry, whereby the federal government had been receiving Qatari and Turkish uh, assistance. And they also fear that these large infrastructural projects that sort of exclude the federal government are going to, lead, are going to further cement the um, independence of these breakaway states, uh, which is something that they're, they're generally quite opposed to. Well, so you mention this competition, and of course, um, you talk about uh, Turkey and Qatar and their relationship with Somalia proper. Um, uh, and, and the Emiratis obviously are not the only player in this space. Um, could you maybe just sketch out quickly, you know, the, the kind of contours uh, of that um outside investment uh, and how then that has uh, um, kind of transposed uh, regional rivalries onto, onto the horn. Yeah, so uh, if you look at Somalia, um, in uh, the federal government has received considerable Qatari and Turkish investments, but it's also interesting to note that it was also receiving Emirati uh, assistance, especially with regards to security. Um, however, in recent years, it's becoming increasingly fractured and it, it's the country is sort of uh, being pulled towards the um, polarization of the GCC rivalries, whereby some of the federal states such as Somaliland and Puntland are becoming increasingly closer to the UAE. The uh, federal government in Mogadishu is much closer to Qatar and Turkey. And... Um, Outside Somalia, Somalia uh, Qatar and Turkey invested something to the tune of $3 billion in the port in Sudan. Um, the UAE has been uh, looking, has a military base in Asab in Eritrea. And they obviously played an instrumental role in sort of the first rounds of negotiations between Ethiopia and Eritrea. Um and in Djibouti, which was one of DP World's first commercial, uh, international commercial ventures, um, problems arose uh, about bribery, and then the Djibouti government sold its share in the port to a Chinese company, and then later it expropriated uh, its assets of the port and finally nationalized the company in 2018, undermining uh, DP World's operations there. So I think that these large fixed commercial ventures are important to understanding what's the backdrop onto which GCC rivalries are then later overlaid. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. What exactly would a progressive foreign policy look like in the Middle East? What can governments do differently and better? Critiques are easy. Providing realistic policy proposals is harder. I'm Michael Wahid Hanna, and with my colleagues and collaborators here at the Century Foundation, we're trying to answer the hard policy questions with specific, concrete proposals. 
You can see our ideas and join the conversation on our website, tcf.org. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis here in Beirut with Michael Wahid Hanna and our guest, Rohan Advani. So, um, Rohan, we were talking a little bit uh, about the kind of backdrop of uh, uh, competition. Um, and I'm interested to know a little bit more um, your thoughts on, on whether now the Gulf crisis is providing a further impetus um, to this competition? Are, are we now seeing this spillover in a way that is fueling further economic and security activity? Are we, are we seeing a kind of intensification uh, in, in, in the horn as, as another arena in which the Gulf crisis can play out? Definitely. I think that the Gulf crisis, um, the splits between the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and then uh, Qatar and let's say Turkey, are definitely intensifying what's going to happen in the horn because it's another... I mean, first of all, we have to remember that these states are pouring a lot of money into cash-strapped cash governments in the horn. And so it's, it's a way of um, tying various political elements in the horn to outside powers, which creates a number of path dependencies that are sometimes very hard to break out of. Um, and so it's undoubtedly creating more rivalries in regards to uh, commercial developments, security arrangements. Um, but I also want to make it quite clear that GCC rivalries are not the main cause of what's going on in the Horn of Africa, but they are just uh, a more recent uh, driver of further instability. Well, so on that point, uh, instability, uh, you know, these are huge sums of money that are being invested. Um, they have security overtones. Um, there is this uh, uh, not even a backdrop anymore of, of regional competition. Um, how destabilizing might this be? I mean, if we're talking about this uh, set uh, of regional crises, you have uh, an area of Africa that has hosted proxy wars in the past. Um, does this have the capacity, the possibility to tip into something much more serious? Or is this, is, is this do you think, and I'm asking you not to prognosticate totally, but um, I mean, do you think this has the, the possibility of tipping into something, um, a, a more overt conflict? Or is this really going to occupy a kind of commercial competition? I don't want to rule out the possibility of it spilling into an overt conflict. I'll give you one example. For example, uh, DP World in Puntland, uh, recently one of their, uh, a port director, his name was Anthony Formosa, Paul Anthony Formosa, he was murdered, uh, shot dead by gunmen posing as fishermen, who then uh, Al-Shabaab later claimed uh, responsibility. However, in a recent New York Times article, they found leaked audio of a businessman and uh, basically implying that Qatar was behind this, right? Now, I don't want to go too much into the rumors. We don't know exactly what happened, but this is one uh, possible implication of this geopolitical rivalry. Um, 
you know, that's, that's, a, that's an occurrence of violence. Um, I think that if violence does happen, it'll definitely be more on the proxy level. Um, how that will actually look is still unclear. And I think that we definitely don't want to overstate, um, uh, you know, uh, the fact that this could easily slip into violence just because of these rivalries. Rivalries exist in many places. They can be contained. Often compromises come at the result as a result of rivalries. So uh, we don't. We just don't know yet. Uh, the UAE has been keen to highlight the ways in which it thinks it's it's playing a kind of positive political role in the region. Um, you know, it, it, does this provide the UAE an, uh, an opportunity at a time when its international reputation has taken a hit uh, because of things like the the war in Yemen, the war in Libya, um, the Gulf crisis? Um, is this an arena, perhaps, where the UAE can? Um, can exercise uh, a more responsible diplomatic role? I mean, it could. I wouldn't want to rule it out. We saw positive signs of its sort of mediating role with regards to the initial rapprochement between Ethiopia and Eritrea, though the status of that now is uh, relatively unclear. Um, And then also, you know, its decision to pull out of the war in Yemen was quite astute. Uh, I think it saw which way the winds were blowing. However, at the same time, we don't know what that withdrawal really looks like. I mean, it's sort of cemented control uh, in terms of um, controlling, in terms of projecting power over maritime routes. It's got a, a strong, it's backing a, a strong force in, in southern Yemen. But I mean, on the whole, I'm actually relatively skeptical because judging from its history, I mean, it's aggressively expanding um and we have to remember you know these are rival rivaling geopolitical powers um that's obviously not to rule out that there can't be uh, times of cooperation but um you know these are also capitalist economies that uh, you know structurally um are going to compete with one another and that can play out as uh, geopolitical rivalries sometimes At a time when the focus of politics is on being the loudest voice and not the most informed, the Century Foundation delivers thoughtful, evidence-based policy leadership with purpose. I'm Lucy Muirhead, Chief Strategy Officer at the Century Foundation. We work to reduce inequality, foster opportunity, and promote peace and security, carrying on a tradition that TCF's founder began in 1919. In the Century Ahead, we'll continue to prioritise rigour over reactivity elevate the best ideas and most diverse voices, and never lose sight of what it takes to make an impact. You're listening to TCF World Podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and I'm here with my colleague, Michael Waheed Hanna. We're talking to Rohan Advani about uh, DP World. Should we understand DP World as like a latter-day British East India or Dutch East India company, like a vertically integrated arm of the state or a sort of public-private partnership that is about projecting power as much as it is about making money? Yeah, I mean, I've thought about that analogy for quite a while, and it's attractive, but I don't think it actually gets uh, what is really happening. I mean, I'm not an expert in the history of the British uh, East India Company, but 
you know, the British East India Company was very influential in India from the 17th century to the mid-19th century, but it took the, uh, you know, the, the Indian Rebellion of 1857 for it to be dissolved, which then later the British state directly administered control. A better way to look at it is as this is an imperial formation where uh, state and capital are converging and we're seeing the effects of this, especially in the periphery, where you can have a quote unquote neutral commercial entity that is fully integrated into a, uh, a, a military arrangement. Um, so I don't want to. I don't want to say that DP World is simply a puppet of the state. It clearly has its own interests, and I'm sure that they can contradict with those of the Emirates. Um, and at the same time, DP World ultimately has to rely on the uh, military guarantees of the Emirati state. It doesn't have its own uh, you know, military uh, capacities or anything like that. So does it actually make money? For, for the Emirates? Is this a profitable enterprise? DP World is an extremely profitable company and it's important for the uh, Dubai Emirate. It Not only does it make money from its overseas investments, but uh, it owns uh, Jebel Ali port, which is uh, the ninth biggest port in the world and by far the biggest port in the Middle East. Um, it in 20, December 2014, DP World also agreed to purchase the Jebel Ali Free Zone for $2.6 billion, there, thereby integrating a logistical functions and uh, thereby integrating logistical functions and gaining overship over an infrastructure that accounts for more than 20% of Dubai's GDP. That's a huge, a huge number. Uh, one of the things I, 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 I'm curious about, I mean, we talk about these companies, um, we talk about DP World, and and we also often talk about Chinese uh, infrastructure investments in ports and other major projects, uh, as if they are somehow. Um, I mean, we. I'm not saying you're doing this, but people often equate this with direct political power and influence, and they also often uh, assume that that these kinds of uh, these kinds of of, of sort of economic bases are functionally the same or, or similar in terms of power projection to, uh, to military bases. And I just want to, you know, ask, so you, you, you referred earlier to the nationalization of one of these uh, in Djibouti and it's then being reassigned to the Chinese. Are these assets even more so than military bases, uh, things that can sort of vanish overnight if the political climate changes and the host government decides to ally with a, with a company from a different place? Yeah, I think that's right. And it's very important to note that, you know, commercial ports are not the same thing as military bases by any means. I mean, I've explained that they're they're more connected than we may think, right? I mean, military operations have a large logistical um, element to them. But I think that people often, commentators often take, it, take these uh, agreements and contracts at face value and equate that with being political control. I mean, DP World has many ports in South Asia, in Latin America. That doesn't mean that they have political control over those areas. Now, that's not to say that these ports don't mean anything, right? Like, um, after the Indian military 
moved in its forces to Kashmir, we saw a, a very loud silence from uh, from the Emiratis. I think actually the Emirati ambassador to India said, you know, that this is an internal matter. And I'm sure that that is not disconnected from their commercial uh, operations there. But at the same time, as we know from uh, what's happening in terms of nationalization, um, you know, they don't have a lock over these ports. I mean, I think that's one thing that we should keep in mind. You've mentioned this a few times, but um, the linkage between uh, the economic and the kind of logistical uh, angle to to war fighting, um, and and some of these uh, uh, ports have been quite uh, important for the war in Yemen. Um, maybe if you could just sketch out the kind of role that they have played in in the ongoing conflict. Yeah, I think it's worth actually going back slightly. So uh, if you look at the Red Sea region, uh, following the uh, following the war on terror. In 2003, the United States government sets up Camp Limonier in Djibouti as the head of its counter-terrorist operations in the Horn of Africa. Then in 2008, you have an increase in piracy uh, activity in Somalia, and this invites a whole host of international powers, the EU, NATO, uh, to set up what are called combined task force, CTFs. They essentially patrol these areas, and the UN actually gives approval to uh, police areas both in the water and inland. In this environment, uh, Western powers are clearly militarizing this region, but also uh, the Gulf states start to... um, in terms of naval operations, they contribute to these CTFs, even though they're not part of the EU or NATO. And also they start forging links with paramilitary organizations onshore. So, for example, the UAE starts to pay uh, salaries of Somali security forces. According to one crisis group report, it's estimated that they were paying the salaries of 10,000 Somalis. Uh, they delivered a large number of... Um, These are beyond the people they directly employ, you mean? Or the 10,000 10, includes their direct employees? Or are those security force members become direct employees of DP World? No, they're they're Somali security forces, but their salaries are paid by the UAE. And then the UAE was also donating large armored vehicles uh, to Somalia, and especially in uh, their... Uh, federal states, such as Southwest State, Jubaland, Puntland. Uh, most controversial has been the, est- the establishment of the Puntland uh, Maritime Police Force, which was uh, basically on the payroll of the uh, Emiratis. It was established to counter uh, piracy and uh, terrorism. It was uh, in part designed by Eric Prince, And all of this was under the Emirati payroll, and it got out of hand very quickly. Eric Prince is the founder of Blackwater, who is a sort of mercenary par excellence or villain par excellence of the last 20 years. Right. So he found his way to Puntland, this uh, uh, breakaway region of uh, Somalia, and he established this um, military force, which was supposed to 
counterterrorism and piracy, but basically was only answerable to the presidency. And uh, it employed a bunch of South African apartheid era officers to help establish the training as well. But things got out of hand. One of them was murdered. Um, and I think the Emiratis really wanted to kind of stay away from this. But essentially what it did was it, it, um, it boosted the proto-state capabilities of these breakaway states, right? So you, it was ostensibly in the name of countering piracy and terrorism, but essentially what it did was to establish a kind of autonomous presidency. And so within this context, you are having um, a very militarized region. And so when the war in Yemen breaks out, uh, UAE interests are potentially threatened and then are therefore, there's a lot of investments made to strengthen them. And so I don't think we can understand why the war in Yemen took the, followed in the way that it did without understanding this important backdrop. And so, you know, just to, to give us a kind of final uh, gloss on, on this, this whole issue, um, maybe you could just sum up for us, you know, what, what do we think, where do we think this is going? Um, you know, why is this important for those thinking both about the Middle East and the Horn of Africa? And, and about the intersection of private interest with, with public security policy. I think that basically if you want to understand what GCC rivalries are going to look like, whether they take place in the rest of the Middle East or in places like the Horn of Africa, you're going to have to look at this confluence of private and public actors because they don't always, it creates a more messy field than we think. They don't always map onto uh, uh, sort of neat sides, but also they give us an insight into how these conflicts or what these conflicts are going to look like. So, for example, GCC rivalries don't exactly tell us what exactly Somaliland is going to look like in 10 years. It doesn't tell us what Puntland is going to look at 10 years. But if you look at a company like DP World, you know that it's building free trade zones, you know that it's building hospitals, water facilities. It's trying to develop the contours of a state. And so I think analyzing companies like this gives us much more insight into what a future uh, Somaliland or Puntland state, state might look like and what their relationships with the federal government of Somalia are going to be as well. So I guess one day we, we might have, you know, the ambassador to Somaliland or the ambassador to DP World as a, as a major player. Well, Rohan, thank you so much uh, for, for your... Uh, uh, for for being on the podcast, and uh, I'm Thanasi Kambanis with Michael Wahid Hanna. Until until next time, you've been listening to DCF World Podcast. Thank you. DCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about our work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.